Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey friends, I hope you're well. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubs, your host, and this is season number six. Solve complex problems, a diversity of viewpoints is fundamental, even if they oppose the predominant view or your own position. Understanding a problem from another person or group's point of view provides an opportunity to pressure test, to build upon, or to add or perhaps remove layers of your own views or model. My guest today is Gary Tobbs, author and science journalist, best known for his books Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat, to discuss the new iteration of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. The carbohydrate insulin model has been proposed in various forms over the last couple of decades, and Gary has contributed to a recent paper by Dr. David Ludwig, Mark Friedwin, Eric Westman, Walter Willett, and many other authors on the updated iteration, the carbohydrate insulin model, a physiological perspective on the obesity epidemic. In this conversation, Gary will walk us through some of the rationale behind this new iteration of the carbohydrate insulin model. In our previous episode, in case you missed it, you heard from Dr. Deidre Tobias from Harvard University, who discussed the latest updates on her work with Dr. Kevin Hall, Dr. Stefan Guillenet, and many others on the energy balance model, beyond calories in, calories out for weight loss, which is the predominant model supported by the bulk of the research at this point. So you may want to circle back and give that a listen as well. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Jameson Vitamins who are sponsoring today's show. While it's technically spring, it still feels a lot like winter out there, and we're not out of the cold and flu period just yet. So how can you help support a more robust immune system? Well, of course, it starts with getting more sleep, but there are evidence-based strategies for reducing intensity and severity of colds and flus from supplements such as probiotics, zinc lozenges, and vitamin C. Jameson Vitamins provides evidence-based, high-quality pharmaceutical-grade supplements to help you achieve your performance goals at work, home, and in the gym. For listeners of the podcast, you can go to jamesonvitamins.com. That's J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N vitamins.com. Use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your order. That's jamesonvitamins.com. Use the promo code BUBS, B-U-B-B-S, and save 10% off your next order. All right, let's get started. My conversation with Gary Tobbs. Enjoy. Gary, really appreciate you carving out some time today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks. So I'd love to start the conversation by, you know, going right back to your early days, you know, days at university when you're studying applied physics at Harvard and aerospace engineering at Stanford University. And then, you know, all of a sudden you then pivoted and decided to pursue journalism at, uh, I believe it was Columbia University. You know, what steered you in that direction at that time? Uh, the fact that I would have been a lousy physicist and maybe <laughs> even a worse aerospace engineer. Um, it's a cliche. I was trying to find myself in my youth. I was lucky enough or fortunate enough to get into very good universities and squander tens of thousands of dollars of my father's money while I was searching. But I was clear that I wasn't cut out to be a physicist. And uh, my year, my master's in, in aerospace at Stanford was a learning experience that I probably wasn't cut out to do that either. All the, along the way, though, I had wanted to to get into journalism. Um, I had read All the President's Men, a book by Woodward and Bernstein about the Nixon and his impeachment. And I, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And Columbia was an opportunity to get the education I needed to make up for the time I had lost studying science. And then when, once I had a, a journalism degree, turned out the only job I could really get was as a science journalist, but it also turned out that there was a need for investigative science reporting, which I was unaware of then. And I've been doing that now for almost 40 years, 35 years. So. Tremendous. And if we take a little tangent here, you know, what, what makes a good journalist or a good writer? Uh, same thing that makes a good scientist, curiosity. 
and an unwillingness to sort of settle on the first or even second thing you're told as you know the reality of what you're trying to write about so um i don't know why some of us are more curious or less satisfied than others when it comes to answering questions but you just the non-technical phrase would be to have a good bullshit meter um the ability to make some decision about whether what you're being told is an explanation for some phenomenon, whether it's a social phenomenon that you're reporting about as a journalist or a, um, a scientific phenomenon, is, does what you're being told make sense? And if it doesn't make sense to you, the willingness to keep asking questions. I used to tell uh, scientists when I'd interview them that um, I would apologize because I said I'm going to ask some stupid questions, most likely, and I would like when you answer these questions to pretend you're trying to explain this to your dog, and then we might hit the right level of explanation. And there are some fields that clearly, um, you know, I, I had the advantage when I started my career reporting about physics, and there were some fields that my brain just couldn't wrap itself around and. That was clear when I was studying physics too, but um, quantum optics was an example. I used, to, I used to do these stories for the journal Science and they'd give me a headache just trying to follow what the research were telling us. Others are surprisingly not that difficult. They are amenable to, you know, a reasonably intelligent person asking questions until they get a response that seems to make sense. Um, and then having some way to assess whether the conclusions you're coming to are are valid or viable hypotheses and that's true both of science and journalism you're trying to elucidate something that nobody knows in both in investigative journalism and in science um although the difference is in investigative journalism some people might know it they're just not telling you um and you know all these questions about issues about being skeptical of your own thinking, being critical of your own hypotheses, being willing to, to try and find ways to test that hypothesis. They all come in. And there are a lot of people out there who would say that I do my job badly. So just as I'm arguing that a lot of scientists do their job badly. So it's, it ends up being, you know, judgments being made that you hope you can live with. In that early part of your career and then working as a science journalist, you know, what were some of the challenges or skills that you learned as you as you worked your way through that? Um, you know, uh, well, first of all, I mean, the biggest challenge you have to recognize bad science when you smell it, <laughs> put it that way. Um, my learning experience. So 1984, I was um, I was working at uh, Discover Magazine, which was a major science magazine, still is. It was owned by Time Incorporated at the time. And I had written an article about a, a physicist who taught at Harvard and did his physics at CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research in Geneva. And he had come upon fundamental particles. So he had claimed to be, have discovered fundamental particles that were would be sort of completely new physics. And he had given a talk about this at the American Physical Society meeting in Washington. And, and I had asked him if I could go write a book about this because it's rare that people predict discoveries. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and he was predicting. He said, we just have to turn on our accelerator and get a little more evidence. And I thought this would be an opportunity for me to write a book uh, similar to the double helix written about the discovery of DNA, yeah. the structure of DNA. But I wouldn't have to, since I wasn't one of the players, I wouldn't have to be as smart as Crick or Watson or this physicist was. Anyway, he says, yes, I go off to Geneva. I move in to the hostel on the laboratory. Um, I start documenting what I think is going to be this great discovery. I'm very excited about being uh, able to do this. This is, you know, a unique thing for a young science journalist. Um, it very quickly appears that what this physicist was claiming was likely wrong. There were certainly people on his experiment. The experiment had 150 physicists on it. Um, 
clearly a significant proportion of the physicists on the experiment thought it was wrong. And I spent the next 10 months watching them come to understand how they were wrong and interviewing them. And, and I was embedded, today we would say I was embedded with the physicists. And um, it was kind of a remarkable learning experience and how hard it is to do science, right? How meticulous your understanding of your equipment has to be um, and how easy it is to get the wrong answer if, if your understanding isn't good enough and how difficult it is to know when your understanding of your equipment is good enough to know that you can believe what it's you think it's telling you and um you know that that was a unique opportunity for me as a journalist and there are very few journalists maybe none who have ever had the opportunity to watch a mistake being made in real time and watch how the scientists deal with it or don't deal with it. And many of the physicists on the experiment respected what I was doing and liked and respected me. So I had sort of remarkable access to these people. I mean, you know, we became friends. Um, it's interesting, when I finally was done, I wrote a book called Nobel Dreams about it, um, Power, Deceit and the Ultimate Experiment, um, which is not my best writing but it was an interesting learning experience. Uh, the head of the experiment, this physicist who had now won the Nobel Prize for earlier work that was also mostly wrong, um, wanted to sue me for slander or libel. And he had an executive committee of physicists who were heads of all the different institutions that were part of this experiment. And he wanted them to join in so they could all sue me together. And something like two thirds of his executive committee had read my book in draft and made corrections for me okay. to make sure that I didn't make any mistake that could lead me to be sued, for instance, because they all appreciated what I was doing because they had the same issues with this Nobel Prize winner as I did. Interesting. Um, anyway, I think of all the things I had to learn to do what I ended up doing, that was it. It's just you have to recognize how difficult this is, how there's no place in the process of science where you could make an assumption and say, I'm gonna believe this is true and work from there because as soon as you do that, you're gonna get the wrong answer. It's just nature isn't that kind. And um, all my books, my second book, which was about um, this great scientific fiasco that followed called Cold Fusion, today is actually the anniversary of the announcement of Cold Fusion. I think of it as National Bad Science Day or it should be International Bad Science Day. Um, that was March 23rd, 1989. And that was another example. I came into that later because it was announced in March and I only started reporting it as a book probably, you know, six weeks later and things are moving so fast that a lot had happened in those six weeks. But again, it was the book ended up being called Bad Science. And it was an opportunity to really understand how some very good researchers got misled by their experiments and their hopes and their dreams and what they wanted to discover. And if you don't recognize that, it's hard to understand really the scientific process. A lot of journalists, you know, what we do for a living is we write about what we think is good science. Mm -hmm. You know, and we trust the journal and we trust the scientists that they did a good job. And so we can report this and, you know, maybe you'll get one quote from someone saying, well, you know, it's interesting, but I don't really buy it. Um, very few journalists get the opportunity to really study bad science and to understand how prevalent it might actually be. And I don't think we know. So, yeah, so that's fascinating stuff. And if we fast forward from there to the release of your book, Calories, Bad Calories in the mid 2000s, you know, obviously the shift towards nutrition and health, what sparked that interest for you? Well, I went from writing about cold fusion after I wrote about cold fusion, I had a lot of friends in the physics community and uh, they were dealing with this idea that uh, electromagnetic waves from power lines cause cancer. Um, now that's, that's sort of morphed into this idea that your cell phone could give you brain tumors or leukemia if you hold it 
you know. Um, Lose your head for too long. <laughs> yeah, and they thought this was terrible. So because they were physicists who dealt with things like electromagnetic waves, they had been brought into this uh, um, controversy and they were stunned at how bad the science was in this field. And so the way you determine whether or not, and the one way that people tried to determine whether or not cell phones or power lines cause cancer is by the science of epidemiology. So you take a whole bunch of people who live near power lines and then you compare them to people who don't live near power lines and you look to see whether or not they have more or less, you know, rates of whatever cancers you think might be related. And there are various ways you could assess the electromagnetic field strength that's coming from the power lines. You might do various different measurements um, of that. And, um, and then you have to assume that the difference between people who live close to power lines and people who live far away from power lines are only um, whether or not the power lines, you know, not, for instance, people who tend to live close to power lines might be poorer than people who live farther away. Or, I mean, there's just all kinds of ways you can be fooled by what you think is a very simple test of your hypothesis. So anyway, these physicists thought the science was terrible. And they said to me, basically, Gary, if you like writing about bad science, you should look at this stuff in public health because it's terrible. That's the quote I remember from a very well-respected physicist at Yale University. And so I did. So I did an article uh, on the power line controversy itself. And then that was all dependent on the science of epidemiology. And while I was doing the interviews, I was interviewing epidemiologists and they seemed to pay no attention, even the good ones. I mean, these are well-respected, seemingly intelligent guys, but they had no sense of all the sort of rigor and methodical skepticism, institutionalized skepticism that the physicists and my experience first at CERN Sorry. with Nobel Dreams and then Cold Fusion had taught me it was absolutely necessary to get the right result. So I, by now I was writing uh, for the journal Science. I pitched them on an article on epidemiology that was relatively famous or infamous about its limits, suggesting that it had become an effect or had never progressed beyond being a pseudoscience. Um, and then uh, once I was writing in public health, I started covering more issues related to diet. And then I just stumbled into this sort of first the idea that salt causes hypertension, um, which is, you know, the idea that we should eat a low salt diet is, is, as well accepted an idea in nutrition as there is that, that if we do so we'll avoid you know salt that raises our blood pressure and it turned out that i spent nine months on that story i interviewed about 85 i think it was researchers and administrators who had helped create this belief system that salt was the cause of hypertension and the science just wasn't there. The evidence to support it just wasn't there. It was an interesting hypothesis that had more or less failed the tests that it had been put to, but people had become so invested in it, they didn't care about the failure. They picked whatever evidence they liked from the tests that seemed to confirm their belief. And then they said, we didn't do the test right. Yeah. Um, while I was doing that, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed, and I thought I had interviewed some of the worst scientists in the world, um, one who was clearly in the bottom five, took credit not just for getting Americans on the low-salt diet we were eating, but the low-fat diet. And so I spent a year on the dietary fat story, a year for a single magazine article. I interviewed about 140-odd researchers. And Interesting. Um, read stacks and stacks of documents, although back then they were hard to get. Now you've, you know, to say you Likes. read like 30 doc, 30 articles is like nothing because people download 30 articles in a day. And while I was doing that story, I interviewed a guy who had been an administrator at the National Institutes of Health. And he said, yeah, it's interesting. In the mid 1980s, we put the whole country on a low fat diet. And we thought, well, if they don't eat the dense calories of fat, they'll at least, if nothing else, lose weight. We didn't really know if it would accept and make a difference in cholesterol. And lo and behold, since then, we have an obesity epidemic. So they ate less fat and more carbohydrates, and they got fatter. Mm -hmm. I thought, that's interesting. I bet there's a story there. And then 
you know, I did a, basically use that thinking alone to pitch a story to the New York Times Magazine. It was called, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? And was seen as a, um, was kind of a, well, the, the lead suggested that maybe of all the people doing nutrition and obesity researchers, research, the one who got closest to the truth was Atkins of Atkins Diet Revolution, which was, you know, quackery as far as the medical community was concerned. And um, anyway, then it went from there. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Looking back, you know, obviously the importance of protein and what we see now in the research around protein. And and I remember back in the late 90s applying to medical schools and it was difficult to find any docs that really felt that nutrition could have a significant impact on any real meaningful outcome. So it's, uh, you know, fast forward 20 years and it seems every doctor now has got uh, nutrition on their mind, which is which is great on one side. And then, of course, a little bit challenging in, in another sense. But uh, well, it's interesting because... Yeah, I'm writing this book now on diabetes, which is kind of a historical case study of its diabetes and diet and how we came to believe what we believed and how, you know, various strains of evidence were dismissed. And I mean, the argument was always diet's got to be the cornerstone of, you know, at least type two diabetes treatment. It's got to be. It's, that's what they said 100 years ago. They say, you know, throughout it's always diet, diet, because type two diabetes associates with obesity. So you got to get people to eat less. That was a belief. Or you got to control weight. That is the fundamental thing. So we got to control blood sugar. That's what we would like to do. But the way we're going to do that is by controlling people's weight or getting them to a healthy weight. And nobody knew how to do that. And because they didn't know how to do that, rather than assume that their dietary therapies or dietary thinking was incorrect, the physicians just assumed that none of their patients wanted to stay on diets. What people like me have been arguing is the reason they want to stay on diets is because the diets you told them to eat didn't work. So why should they do it anyway? Or if they lost a little weight, they were hungry all the time and nobody wants to be hungry all the time. And so the non-compliance you were seeing was not necessarily result of the cognitive challenges of your patients, but because of the fact that you were giving them the wrong advice. If you gave them the right advice, then they could actually change their health. But, and it's, it's fascinating. And it sort of brings us to the topic here today around you know, the recent paper that Dr. David Lego and colleagues, you contributed to the carbohydrate insulin model, uh, physiological perspective on the obesity epidemic. Now, you know, in the paper, obviously talking about how the obesity pandemic really is caused by overconsumption and then all these highly palatable and energy dense processed foods that are around us. And of course, sedentary living, which has obviously been exacerbated by the, the pandemic. And despite this, you know, persistent focus on eating less and, uh, you know, moving more, we really haven't been able to, with, with the energy balance model, which is sort of the dominant model, be able to correct these historic highs in terms of obesity. So could you maybe start by, defining or summarizing the updated iteration of the carbohydrate insulin model? Well, let me start by defining what we mean by the energy balance model. Sure. Okay, because that's um, fundamental to all of this. I just said, you know, go back 100 years, read Elliot Jocelyn's diabetes textbooks from the early 1920s, which you can get on Google Books now. And they're talking about getting, you got to maintain a healthy weight. And the assumption always is people, well, there were back in the, until 1931, there were two competing hypotheses of obesity. Nobody quite recognized it as that, but there was this idea that some people are just predestined to get fat. No matter how much they eat, how little they eat, their bodies are going to store fat. And so we'll call that the sort of physiological model. And then there was this like, gluttony and sloth model. The rest of, you know, some people are obese and clearly eat enormous amounts of food and they're sedentary. So physicians, obesity influencers of the era would look at them and say, well, they eat a lot, they're obese. Obviously that's why they're obese. And as for these other people who don't eat a lot, but are also suffer from obesity, we don't know what the answer is. So you've got this 1930, a researcher named Louis Newberg comes along from the University of Michigan. And at this point, obesity science is like 
you know, to half a dozen to a dozen physicians from around the world, many of them who deal with diabetes as well, speculating in textbooks and articles now and then what might be the cause of this issue. Um, again, some people eat a lot, for them it's they eat too much and some people, who knows? And so Newberg claims to prove experimentally that obesity is a calorie imbalance issue. And the way he does it is he takes a half dozen people, five of them are obese and he starves them and he starves a lean person and they tend to lose weight at the same rate. So from this, he concludes that they get fat because they eat too much and they get thin when they eat less and that's all you have to know. And then he manages to convince through the world that this is the case. I mean, it's what, you know, um, the first animal models for obesity appear in the late 1930s, uh, lesion, the ventromedial hypothalamus of a rat or a mouse, and you can make it obese. And um, one of the researchers who's studying those, a uh, guy getting his medical degree at Yale named John Brobeck has read Newberg and decides that he knows Newberg has stated uh, unambiguously that obesity is always caused by eating too much. And Brobeck notices when you lesion these rats that the rats eat a lot. So ergo, he's discovered the cause of obesity in the rats, which is that they eat too much. And World War II comes along and Brobeck is the only researcher whose career, Brobeck and Newberg together, like the only researchers whose career span the war years. And so when the war is over, this idea that obesity is always caused by eating too much is a conventional wisdom. And then it morphs into this idea that it's not just eating, it's eating too much in respect to how much you're expending. So it's not just intake, it's expenditure. And since we know that people with obesity often appear to be sedentary, we could assume that the sedentary behavior also feeds the obesity. And yeah. by the 1970s, 1980s, this evolves further into this idea that molecules, uh, compounds, hormones that are related to obesity work by stimulating eating behavior in the brain. And the most famous is leptin. So the idea is leptin inhibits eating behavior. And when you're leptin deficient or your leptin molecules are defective, you if they don't work, you eat too much. And that's the cause of being fat. So this idea Obesity by the conventional thinking, what we've all grown up being taught and what the is, you know, you have to trust me that virtually all of the research, like 99 to 99.99% of every article ultimately is dependent on this idea that obesity is caused by overconsumption of food. Um, one of the things I did, in my research because I went back in time to look at how the science evolved, I realized there was always this competing hypothesis that it was a, obesity was a hormonal disorder. So people who are struggling with obesity don't do so because they can't balance their intake to their expenditure, but they do so because their fat tissue for whatever reason is taking up too much fat. It's like a fat accumulation disorder not an energy balance disorder. And by the 1960s, it was clear that the hormone insulin regulated, for all intents and purposes, was a dominant hormone regulating fat storage and fat cells. So you elevate insulin, you store fat, and when insulin comes down, you mobilize fat from your fat tissue and your lean tissue burner for fuel. And insulin, it's funny, uh, very, influential, well-respected uh, physiologists and endocrinologists would refer to insulin as the signal of the fed state, but it's a signal that you're fed carbohydrates. So what insulin did was it linked the carbohydrates in the diet to fat storage, which is ironic because people think you eat a lot of fat, you get fat. And it's true that you store most of the fat that you eat, but it is that fat storage is dependent on the insulin response because what your body wants to do when you eat a mixed meal is it wants to burn the carbohydrates because high blood sugar is toxic. And in order to do that, it basically tells your fat cells to store the fat until the carbs are gone. And insulin is the primary signal. There's a whole slew of hormones that are in this sort of being orchestrated. Playing roles, yeah. 
anyway, so that's it. So uh, by the 1960s, 70s, there had also been a sort of conventional thinking that carbohydrates themselves are fattening. Um, without any thinking of the underlying mechanism, just this idea that was, it was, you know, the article I quote in all of my books is, uh, was from uh, one of the two leading British dietitians in 1963 who said every, um, every woman believes that carbohydrates are fattening. That's a piece of nutritional wisdom with which no one would disagree, something very close to that. And that was the conventional wisdom. And it dates back to the 19th century, the belief system that, you know, people, women in particular, tend to put on fat when they eat bread, rice, potatoes, pasta, sweets, of course, you know, the idea that beer is fattening. Um, you know, it's called a beer belly for a reason, not because you eat butter when you drink the beer, but because the beer itself is fattening, although the conventional wisdom would have been that it's too much calorie. So anyway, I and others, including most prominently David Ludwig and Mark Friedman, uh, who was another one of the co-authors on this article, sort of have been dragging this carbohydrate insulin model out of obscurity and trying to put it back as a competing hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you get fat because you eat too much and expend too little or because the brains of people who struggle with obesity can't balance their intake to their expenditure, but that the, their response to the carbohydrates of the diet is to store excess fat. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, it changes everything about how you think of the implications um, of the dietary for diet, for prevention, even for treatment. And so this is the argument that, you know, we've been making in various venues. I've been making in my books and in an article that was published simultaneously with the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition article. And, <clears throat> you know, it's very hard to shift the paradigm relatively easy to get a paradigm accepted. It's very hard to shift it once an entire community of people and not just scientists, but health educators and doctors and nutritionists and dietitians and trainers and your friends at the grocery market all come to believe one thing and then you come along and say, oh, by the way, that was wrong. But this article is part of the process of trying to get people to take these arguments seriously, that it's not about how much you eat and exercise. It's not that people with obesity have something wrong with their brains that are making them eat too much consciously or subconsciously in this, you know, energy dense food environment in which we live, but that they have a, you know, hormonal physiological disorder that makes them store excess fat in response primarily to the carbohydrate content of the diet. And that goes through insulin. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. Mark here. A quick note to let you know I have a brand new downloadable summary all about sleep. The Sleep for Performance Summary will highlight best practices when it comes to areas to focus on to improve the sleep of your athletes, coaches, and staff. You can get your copy at performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash sleep. That's performancenutrition.com forward slash sleep. And in that, you'll also get some great jet lag strategies as well. All right, let's get back into it. Yeah, it's a really interesting paper. And, you know, of course, you guys recognize that both the energy balance model and the carbohydrate insulin model both recognize that, you know, these changes in food quality are going to be driving things like weight gain. But obviously, that glycemic load playing a really key role, well, you know, like you mentioned in the, in the carbohydrate insulin model. Can you, can you walk us through again some other examples of how, why that glycemic load is such a key player in that whole story? Well, the glycemic load, <clears throat> I think there's actually more to it than we put in the article, but the, the idea is, so we know that, well, obesity and diabetes prevalence has exploded in the past century and a half, and then particularly in the past half century since the late 1970s in the United States. This observation of obesity and diabetes epidemics exists worldwide. Whenever a population transitions from whatever its baseline diet is to a Western diet lifestyle, they sooner or later experience explosive increases in obesity and diabetes. And the conventional thinking again is that 
they have too much food available. It's too tasty and palatable and transitioning to a Western lifestyle. Yeah, usually includes also uh, more sedentary behavior. You have more labor-saving devices. You get an imbalance in energy. That's why you get fat. And the process of getting fatter or the obesity itself triggers the accompanying diabetes epidemic. And by that approach, there are a lot of implications. For one of them is there are no bad foods. So calorie is a calorie. So you can't blame sugar or white bread or high glycemic index foods. You can blame foods for being too dense in calories. You could blame them for being too tasty. So you eat too much of them. You could blame them maybe for somehow tri tricking your brain into eating too much. But ultimately, it comes down to this conscious or subconscious overconsumption. Um, again, the carbohydrate insulin model is that the more, the greater the effect that the food has on insulin secretion. And it could be immediate, which would be through glycemic index and glycemic load, or it could be a slower process through creating insulin resistance, which, you know, is the condition that sort of the fundamental defect in type two diabetes and obesity is an insulin resistant state. So when you're resistant to the insulin mediated uptake of glucose by cells, you secrete more insulin in response. And that means you're, when you're secreting insulin, you're basically storing fat and this drives fat accumulation. So that would be a mechanism related to glycemic load, but it also might be a mechanism entirely different like the fructose, the effect of fructose metabolism in the liver, fructose is half of a sugar molecule. So these particular foods would indeed be fattening. I mean, it's funny, I hear a lot of debate and discussion and I read Twitter and there's all this discussion about the carbohydrate insulin model. The carbohydrate insulin model is carbohydrates are fattening. <laughs> if you have them in the diet, you're going to eat your, and you're susceptible to this problem, then you are going to store excess calories as fat. And if you don't want to store excess calories as fat, you don't eat these foods. Just like an example I used in my last book, I'm allergic to corn. And if I don't want to have gastrointestinal issues, I don't eat corn. If carbohydrates are fattening for me, and I don't want to you know, have to deal with the fattening process, and I have to avoid these foods, which was sort of the argument made 197 years ago. And, and is the rationale then, Gary, that certain, again, phenotypes of people will be more sort of responsive to this? Because, you know, obviously we see in whether it's bodybuilding or sport, various other things, high carbohydrate intakes and, and, and leanness and good metabolic health. But, you know, we also see a swath of the population that obviously are struggling with weight gain, two thirds of the population overweight or obese. We've got this pre diabetes epidemic. Are we? Is it that swath that this is more relating to versus the whole, you know, the whole population? That's one of the fundamental observations. We know that <clears throat> we can take an entire population, any population we want, add Western diets to whatever they were eating. And that's, you know, sugar, flour, alcohol, seed oils for those people who you know, and some people get obese and diabetic and other people won't. Just like we could take an entire population, give them cigarettes and set them to smoking and some people get lung cancer and some people won't. And there may actually be a way to genetically determine who manifests the lung cancer phenotype, but nobody bothers to look because we know we can blame it on cigarettes. So here the idea is, yeah, there's a certain segment of the population that gets bigger with each generation, which we can probably should discuss. And as part of this carbohydrate insulin model um, that, you know, manifests the obese diabetic phenotype in a carbohydrate sugar, high G glycemic load, high sugar environment and a segment of the population that doesn't. The problem is the segment that doesn't often become, they become the bodybuilders and the physical trainers and the athletes. And because they're working out so hard and so dedicated to being fit, they assume that if everyone did like they did, they would be fit also, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a marathon runner, 
and you're lean, it's easy to assume that if everyone ran marathons, they would be lean too. And if they're not lean, it's also easy to assume that they're not lean because they don't put in the effort that you do running marathons. What you don't think about is that your body is, you know, the uh, metaphor I used in my last book is um, actually maybe all of them. You know, it's like a greyhounds thinking that if they could just get the basset hounds to run around the track, the basset hounds would look like greyhounds. And what you get is emaciated, exhausted basset hounds. But not for a second do you end up with anything that looks like a greyhound because they're different animals or different phenotypes. So you add the, the ideas, you add these carbohydrates to the diet, you, a certain segment of the population can't tolerate them and they manifest this obese diabetic phenotype. And then, which is, you know, at its heart, an insulin resistant phenotype. And when the women in this segment become pregnant, um, if they are insulin resistant during pregnancy, so if they gain a lot of weight during pregnancy, if they just, if they have an abnormal glucose tolerance test, that's all of it is a sign of insulin resistance. If they're gestationally diabetic, which is insulin resistance, then they will pass this on, this sort of accentuate this phenomena in their children. And again, there are very good studies done, particularly with the Native American tribe, the Pima in Arizona, showing how this phenotype is magnified with each generation. You get more and more of them very quickly with each generation. Interesting. And you know, within those additional parameters, you talk about those other dietary components, you mentioned fructose, you know, in the paper, in the article, you talk about obviously protein and fatty acid type fiber, even things like food order within the meal, um, environmental exposures, you know, can you touch on some more that can be contributing in a meaningful way, potentially? Well, the way I think about it, and I may not be the best person to interview is that I think it's relatively simple. You know, again, in the, in the course of doing the research for good calories, bad calories, I had an opportunity that most scientists don't have, which is I could move from discipline to discipline to discipline. And in everywhere I went, there were people <clears throat> implicating just the carb content to the diet and how it had changed and its effect primarily on insulin, or you could say insulin glucagon ratio or insulin glucagon and growth hormone. Um, the... Um, my gut feeling has always been that it's the glycemic index and the, like I said, the sweetness, the sugar content and, and sugar, sugary beverages might be fundamental to all of this. They might have to sort of trigger the initial insulin resistance. And there was uh, significant research in animals. You never know what that means, whether it can be extrapolated to humans, but the easiest way to create insulin resistance in animals is to feed them high sugar diets. Um, so I'm not sure how much you know, the role of fiber would be to slow down the digestion, sort of lower the glycemic load and the glycemic index. Um, when you're eating fiber rich foods, you're not eating sugar rich foods, you're not drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so there are a lot of you know, one of the issues with the way we fund science since the 1950s is the National Institutes of Health will fund virtually everyone to do a little bit of research. So they have no mechanism by which to target major problems and say we need to have a sort of Manhattan Project approach to funding this. We're going to pick, you know, very good scientists to assess the data and determine which projects should be maximally funded and just fund five projects instead of 3,000. Mm -hmm. What they do instead is they fund, you put in proposals and people accept the proposals and you end up with a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of sort of trivial to bad science and generating a whole lot of hypotheses that are never tested. And then you end up with this idea that these are complex multifactorial problems because your research enterprise has thrown up, you know, a lot of flags. Yeah, a lot of dozens, thousands of possible, and they're all any single one of them might be valid, mm -hmm. but you don't know. When you again, if you do the kind of exercise I do where you spend this time in the history of the field, you know, you had people in the 
early 19th century saying obesity rates are exploding and sugar consumption is exploding or diabetes rates actually at the time, not obesity. And maybe there's a coincidence. And then you had people in India saying diabetes rates are exploding and sugar consumption is exploding in the population in which the diabetes rates are exploding. Maybe there's a connection. So it's sort of, um, it's a yeah. lot of evidence to indict these, the sugar and the high glycemic index carbohydrates in, you know, as the triggers of obesity. And then again, working through these peripheral physiological mechanisms, not just by making people eat too much. Yeah, it often goes unnoticed that uh, India is sort of the leader in, in type 2 diabetes around the world. We often think that the USA is uh, holding that title, but not uh, not at this point. And, you know, if we circle back to glycemic load, you know, once we start adding protein and fiber and other nutrients, it does get pretty challenging to actually calculate, you know, glycemic load. You know? So how, how might that be, you know, a testable hypothesis? Is there technology well, there coming ways- down the road or are there ways to do it? No, there are ways to test all these things. The problem is, Okay, so disorders like obesity and type 2 chronic disorders develop slowly. So one way to think about scientific experiments is they ask specific questions, and you only get the answer to the question you ask. So is the question, how does glycemic load influence body fat independent of how much I eat? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? Um, it might not be independent of how I mentioned the higher glycemic index foods might also trigger me want to eat more of the higher glycemic index foods, which I think they do. But the first question we want to know is what's the role of the glycemic index independent of the caloric content mm-hmm. on fat mass. So it takes a while to accumulate a noticeable amount of fat mass. And I can't just tell people to eat a high GI diet versus a low GI diet, because then I don't know if they've done it or not. Remember when we started this conversation, I said, you can't make a single assumption that's untested because as soon as you do, you'll get the wrong answer. So if I assume I can tell people to eat this versus that, and they will, and then when I publish the study, how did I know they actually did? Mm -hmm. Science isn't about taking things on faith. So you end up realizing that in order to do these studies, you have to do it long enough to accumulate significant fat mass, assuming your hypothesis is right, and you don't know what significant fat mass is. Is it a pound over two months, or is it a quarter pound over two months? Is it 10 pounds over two months? Um, And then you have to make sure that they eat the food you've given them, and no more nor less. It's not even enough to just give them food because they might eat the food you gave them and then go out and have a Coca-Cola or a Gatorade at 7-Eleven. So now you have to kind of lock them away. Sounds like a metabolic ward study. And now you've got a metabolic ward study. So these now you're paying hospital bed fees, in effect, to keep your patients subjects in your study. So that could be $1,500, $2,000 a night, plus everything else you're doing. And then you have to keep them there long enough to see a significant change on body fat. You have to make sure they only eat the foods that you give them and nothing else. So you can't have, you know, a door in your laboratory that's unlocked that leads to the au bon pain in your basement, for instance, because you don't know if maybe when you're not looking, they're going down to the au bon pain and having a croissant when they should be eating the egg bites. Um, All these things complicate science enormously and they make it very expensive. You can do it a lot cheaper by doing these experiments in rats or mice, but then you don't know if they have any relevance to humans. Translate to humans, yeah. Yeah, so sort of what you end up with is again, a lot of people doing a lot of pieces of experiments sort of facets, things that could possibly be useful experiments if they lasted, say, three months longer, or if they had mm-hmm. better control of the diet, or if they differed. Um, they can be tested, though. All these hypotheses can be tested. They just need the will to test them, the ability to come up with experiments that are rigorously controlled, but that an institutional review board will still consider ethical, <laughs> and the money to pay for them. Um, and all of these are in short supply. So it's sort of, um, you end up with a lot of people arguing on Twitter about the value of experiments that are fundamentally incapable of determining what we want need to know. Um, 
getting back to the article that was published, David Ludwig and Kara Ebeling and a dozen or so co-authors, including me and Mark Friedman, the purpose of that article was to say this hypothesis has to be taken seriously. It is a challenge to this energy balance thinking. It's not how we've thought of obesity for 100 years. It's incredibly important and it has to be taken seriously. You can criticize it, you could critique it. What we need to do is test it because we're living through obesity and diabetes epidemics and they're you know, arguably doing considerably more damage than um, COVID. And within that um, carbohydrate insulin model, you know, what role does the brain seem to play? It doesn't seem to play a very large role in that model, does it, as compared to the, the energy balance model? Well, uh, my friend Mark Friedman likes to say, you have to keep in mind, what's the shot and what's the echo? So in the energy balance model, the brain is the regulates fat accumulation. And it does it, and I may be oversimplifying, for which I'm going to apologize to people who listen to this and criticize me on Twitter. Um, it does it by manipulating energy intake and expenditure, and ultimately the amount of the difference between intake and expenditure that's determined ultimately by the brain is what then is stored as fat. And this alternative model says, look, the brain plays a role in fat accumulation. We've known that for nothing else, 150 years or so. I mean, there are um, but it doesn't do it by manipulating intake and expenditure directly. It does it by um, a hormonal and central nervous system effects on fat storage and fat metabolism. Uh, in 1850 or so, Claude Bernard, the great French physiologist, punctured the third ventricle of the brains of rats and animals, probably dogs back then, and got them to, you know, dump glycogen from their liver into the bloodstream. Um, you oh. know, the brain, we've known there were studies, observations in the first half of the 1920th century of individuals who had uh, spinal cord damage. And above the damage to the spinal cord, they'd be lean and below it, they'd be obese. And so the researchers who studied fat metabolism realized that the uh, nerve, the central nervous system, the nervous system enervates fat cells and it causes fat cells. You can stimulate nerves and it will cause fat cells to dump fat into the bloodstream. And if you inhibit this stimulation, then the fat cells will hold on to fat. So we've always known it plays a, a, a role directly in fat storage and fat metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism. There's a concept called intermediate metabolism, which is basically what your body does with all the macronutrients you consume between eating it and excreting it. And it stores them and converts them into one into another and uses them to, for different purposes. And that's all part of this intermediate metabolism. And the brain plays a significant role in that, but not by determining what you eat or exercise how much you eat or how much you exercise, but through these central nervous system and hormonal influencers. And then whatever happens in the periphery can feed back to determine how much we eat and exercise. So for instance, if you're storing excess calories, those calories aren't available to be used for energy. And so you're going to expend less energy as a result. If um, the, one of the theories I didn't discuss in any of my books, because it was one level of complication more, um, is that the signal to the brain whether or not to eat is not necessarily these hormones that the metabolism of the Research communities embrace like leptin and ghrelin and PYY, but it's actually responding to the energy status of liver cells. So the liver sort of serves as an energy sensor in the body. All the various macronutrients pass through the liver. Yep. And you need an organ that, that just as the eyes receive photons from the outside world and then transmit the uh, Information. The information to your brain, which then creates pictures out of it. Your, the idea is your liver receives information on basically the energy content of your body and 
sends signals to the brain whether or not you should eat or not eat. And um, this is a hypothesis. I did discuss the general nature of it in the last chapter of good calories, bad calories. But again, your brain is responding to your body. So if we disrupt your body in such a way, if we give you a, a drug that'll make your body store fat, like insulin, for instance, you will respond by getting hungrier because your body is trying to grow. Just as when your kids go through puberty and go through growth spurts, though, you'll, one of the reasons you'll know what's happening is they'll be hungrier than they were before because their bodies are now trying to grow. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, Gary, if we look kind of five, 10 years down the road, what does the evolution of research in this area around the carbohydrate insulin model? Oh, again, this depends on funding availability. There are experiments that can be done. There's not a lot of interest by the NIH to fund this research. Um, you get a different variation on it, which is, you know, again, the implication of the carbohydrate insulin model is that carbohydrates are fattening. Okay, simple statement. And the, the fewer carbohydrates you eat, the less of an effect they will have on you. So the extreme is ketogenic diets, right? That's where you remove the carbs in the diet and replace them with dietary fat, because that's the one in a macronutrient that doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. Um, there's been an explosion in ketogenic diet experiments. They cannot Absolutely. establish as they're typically done what, you know, what hypothesis of fat accumulation is being influenced here. There are ways to do it with ketogenic diets that we've tried to do in the past that we've tried to fund with um, the not-for-profit I had co-founded. But um, those studies get funded and probably in the neighborhood of 200 clinical trials that have now been done that, that are almost universally, uh, the ketogenic diet turns out to be almost universally beneficial on almost any sort of uh, physiological state that it's studied on. Um, you know, I'm skeptical of all that work, but it's pretty consistent and pretty compelling. And people are willing to accept that one implication of this is that ketogenic diets, keto are healthy. Um, you know, against that, you have this other force, which is the idea that, that animal agriculture is both unethical and, you know, a major driver of, of climate change. So you have a large, you have, you know, researchers and, and physicians and um, dietitians and nutritionists who are advocating more and more for ketogenic diets as the solution to many physiological conditions. And then you have uh, a competing world of researchers and influencers and public health authorities arguing that ketogenic diets tend to be rich in animal products and they're bad for the environment. And we're all, you know, nutcases. So it's sort of, it's hard to see where that'll play out. Um, it's yeah. a constant day-to-day -day battle and, um, both sides think they're on the side of good science, which is fascinating. Um, you know, both sides think they're I, in an ideal world. Like I said, there would be some governing body of exceedingly good scientists who would come together and say, this is so important. Let's figure out what experiments have to be done and what doesn't to figure out what's driving the obesity and diabetes epidemics. Because if it's people eating too much, that implies a whole world of different therapy and, and, and preventive measures. And if it's the quality and quantity of the carbohydrates people are eating. And so it has to be, you know, I am still stunned that so little interest is generated um, by the funding organizations to solve this problem. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come out there for me. The first is just around what we've learned with the pandemic of just how much waste is produced from, from medicine when we're doing these procedures that we don't need to be doing that. Uh, obviously, all the sick people out there are leading to a lot of uh, challenges when it comes to the environment. And, and the other is even just the, the trickle-down effect when people adopt certain dietary patterns when we see you know protein intake going up and vegetable intake going up and, and changes in terms of that pattern, obviously having a big influence. And, and that's one of, you know, my last book was called The Case for Keto. And I interviewed 120 plus physicians who had sort of converted to this way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, 
the reason they converted was because they had struggled with their weight their whole life or their patients in this day and age, if you're in internal medicine or family medicine, your waiting room is full of people who are suffering the yeah. negative sequelae of obesity and insulin resistance and type two diabetes. And that's what you're treating. And they've been giving the same advice for 50 years and it hasn't made any difference. So they try the diet or one of their patients does and something, you know, they go off carbohydrates, they abstain from carbohydrates. It's the easy way to describe it, whether they replace with, you know, mostly protein or mostly fat or some combination of the two. Um, and they get healthier. And that's how it spreads. You know, the, if it's the patient, it convinces the doctor to try it. And if it works for the doctor, then he or she is going to convince, try to convince more patients to try. And meanwhile, patients go home and their friends say, what did you do? And it used to be you were embarrassed to say what you did. Like you'd say, well, I did Atkins. And people would go, geez, you're going to kill yourself, dude. It's like all that bacon. I had one yeah, woman tell me that, you know, when she weighed 280 pounds, nobody ever commented on her diet. But when she lost 140 of the 280 on, uh, you know, in fact, Atkins, they said, isn't all that bacon going to kill you? <laughs> yeah. you know? it's, and it's she amazing, was so clearly healthier that she just, you know, it's like it's just so, you know, if what I'm describing, and this is, you know, anecdotal and clinical experience, but people go from being unhealthy to being healthy. And the primary transition is giving up the carbohydrates in the diet uh, may not be the only thing they do. But that's what they think of themselves. And so that observation gets other people to do it. And it's become legitimized. If nothing else, we know now that this way of eating is safe. 20 years ago, when I first wrote about this, the assumption was that it was going to kill Very you. Very dangerous, you know? yeah. Yeah. Now, clearly, it's safe, at least in the short term. Knock on Yeah. Me. I mean, there's an interesting just sort of pattern of, of, as you mentioned, like clinicians and docs who, who have struggled being overweight for a large portion of their lives, seemingly adopting that. And then their client base, it seems to be a consistent pattern. So I find that quite interesting when we talk about the different phenotypes. And that leads me to your, you know, for you, Gary, what, what what's next for you in terms of projects? What things are you working on? I know you mentioned you know, diabetes and I have to finish this book on diabetes, which is fascinating. I'm a little skeptical about who's going to want to read it because it's a kind of deep dive into the history of the medicine. It's a, it's a kind of case study on the limits of medical science because you learn that um, medical science evolves because physicians trying to treat their patients are trying to get their patients healthier, but they're making decisions based on what they know at the time. And um, they have no idea of how the decisions they're making based on the primitive state of the evidence at the time are then going to affect how their, you know, the physicians who come down the line are going to interpret this evidence. So it's really kind of a case study in medical science more than a, any guide about how to eat healthy for the one in seven Americans who are now considered to suffer from diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I want to do a book just on the history of the energy balance thinking. This is the, um, you know, I know. Kevin Hall and others are now trying to sort of recast the energy balance thinking as something that I don't believe it ever was. They clearly think they can argue that it, this is how it's always been perceived. But I want to write, this has been a theme or a chapter in every book I've written on nutrition. Um, in some, like why we get fat in the case for keto, it's been a dominant theme. But how we came to this idea that you get fat because you eat too much is a fascinating scientific story and how that influenced everything that came after is again, I got into this because I'm fascinated in good science and bad science and kind of how to do science right and how difficult it is. And all these books are variations on that theme. I've just been lucky that they've had implications, you know, for how people should eat so that people would actually buy them. Um, the, uh, after that, I don't know, I may start a Substack newsletter on good science and bad science and see if I can write regularly about all these different issues because they show up everywhere. You know, it's, I mean, I hesitate to touch the COVID science. It's like the third rail now, but yeah. um, it, um, it, it's just so 
common on both sides, all sides of these debates, the sort of failure to think skeptically enough about the hypotheses. Um, and there's some really interesting lessons from the history of science now, you know, just comparing how people used to discuss their hypotheses versus how they do today, how that's changed. I'm sure Twitter's not helping, right? Twitter is not helping now. Listen, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights. Last question for you. I know you're a bas big basketball fan, Spurs fan. Uh, sadly, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs this year. No, but, uh, we got over the Spurs. <laughs> but I was going to say, do you have any do you have any favorites this year leading into the playoffs? Well, <clears throat> okay. So well, let's talk basketball. Well, I moved out. I became a Spurs fan back in the early 2000s when I – was rooting against the Lakers. <laughs> I lived in Los Angeles. And if you rooted against the Lakers in the early 2000s, you followed the Spurs and the Kings, and then the Kings evaporated, but the Spurs never did. So I stayed a Spurs fan. I loved the way Tim Duncan. Uh, oh, it's in the whole group, Parker. I, I, yeah, I love that team. I love the basketball they played. I love their attitude about it. And then I moved to San Francisco um, and Oakland, where the Warriors are, and Zaza Pachulia, the Warriors stepped on Kawhi Leonard's foot in a playoff that. game when the Spurs were up by 22 points in the third quarter and ended the Spurs dynasty. Yeah. And I could not win. Then the Warriors went, took their 73 win team, and then got Kevin fell, fell Durant short. to join. <laughs> and I couldn't back that. That went against all my beliefs about the sort of, you know, playground basketball rules the best player doesn't join the best team um anyway kd left the warriors became underdogs the spurs just are not have to keep up yeah so now i'm a warriors fan but even that's looking like a bad decision this year so See what well, happens. They were doing well there for a minute with uh, so Kyrie rolled his ankle, but we'll see. Uh, we've got our Canadian Andrew Wiggins having a big year out there for the dubs as well. So we'll have our fingers crossed for them too. But uh, Gary, as always, appreciate your time. You know, where's where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your work? Well, Twitter, you know, at Gary Talbs and my website, GaryTalbs.com, which I don't uh, pay enough attention to. And if I do start a Substack newsletter, which I might. Hopefully it'll be this year. So you can go to my website, sign up for the newsletter, and then I will at least be able to let them know as on Twitter also. I do hope to get back to writing more regularly instead of, you know, just coming out with the book every three or four years, which may not be enough. Terrific. Well, listen, thanks again for the time and uh, be well. Thanks, Mark. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.